Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Good morning. Yesterday, Jody and Max and I met and we're working on some things and uh, Jody said, by the way, why are you preaching what you're, why did, how did you pick your subject for tomorrow? And I thought, that's a good question. First of all, the first Sunday of the new year, we usually choose something that is out of norm, the norm. So we've been going through Advent and then we go normally through the book of Romans. But the beginning of the year is a good time to adjust and to reset. And uh, that's one part of the answer. Another part of the answer is that uh, while our family was together in northern Indiana, I spent a lot of time working, writing, and researching the people that have been supportive of Revoice in the PCA. So I went to all their websites, and I read their churches web pages, and I read their biographies, and saw where they went to school, and just on and on and on and on. Most of all, what I did was I looked at their graphics, their marketing. And uh, it was extremely depressing. And it made me realize, if if you're talking about 200 of the, of the pastors, and they're all graduates, basically, of Westminster Seminary in, Cal, in, in, in uh, Philadelphia, Covenant Seminary, and Reform Seminary. So they, they go to the most conservative seminaries in the country. And seeing what these men do in the name of being shepherds of God's sheep was appalling. And I'm not just talking about Revoice. Revoice is the tip of the iceberg with these guys. Revoice is just the fruit of lives and ministries that are utterly bankrupt of the fear of God. And then, finally, um, you know, I haven't been reading the reading plan for the church because I'm on the two-year Bible reading plan. That's a joke. But I mean, I struggle to get through it in two years, you know. One of the things don't, you don't want to do if you're reading through the Bible is don't do what I've done this, this time, which is I go down and I read every single footnote. And I mean, that just blows everything up because inevitably I sit, sit there and think about the literal meaning versus what they put in the text or which words are in italics. You know, if you read the NASB, italics are there supplying the words and this is fascinating. And so I finally got done. But if you know anything about the Bible, which you may not, but maybe you do. I mean, I don't know, you know? Okay. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that the Bible ends on a pretty intense note. You've got First and Second Peter, and then you've got the love disciple, first, second, third John, and that's, that's <laughs> pretty intense. Anybody want to say what comes next? Jude. Jude intense? And then Revelation. Revelation intense? And I'm sitting there reading these, uh, these letters, and then Revelation, and I'm thinking... 
And that goes on for several days. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, why don't I ever preach this stuff? And so I'm going to preach it. And the final thing I want to say before beginning this sermon is that, as you all know, we, every one of us, must stand before the judgment seat of God. And when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we're not going to be worried what Pastor Bailey thinks. And if you think that because I'm a pastor, I will not give an accounting to God, you don't know the first thing about God. He is more intense with his shepherds than he is with his sheep. My friends, not many of you should desire to become teachers, for you may be certain that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. I'm quoting scripture. And so the awareness of God judging me for my work with you is very, very dear to me, very scary and fearful to me, and very heavy. My father gave me my charge at my ordination back in October of 1983. It was a good charge. I have it up on my wall if you ever want to read it. But you know how the charge ends? The charge ends with the statement, today... You are being asked, will you? On that day, you will be asked, have you? And so in thinking about what it means to be a faithful shepherd, faithful, you know how often I quote the Apostle Paul when he's defending his ministry and the way he defends it is say, I never stopped warning you. He says he did it day and night with tears. And so if you think that I'm a harp of 10,000 strings that harps on one string all the time, well, if that string is warning, I own it. I want you to be able to stand before God humble. I want you to be able to stand before God some little bit aware of your sin so that you can have some little bit of a gratitude to him for his mercy. And without those things, there is no hope for you. The blessing to you is to have shepherds who point your sin out to you. Because until that sin is clear to you, you will never have joy in Jesus Christ. It's the very opposite of what the church gives us today, and we've got to wake up, people. Now, this letter, 2 Peter, is written by the Apostle Peter. And I want to talk just a little bit about him in this letter before we read the text, okay? It's not the Apostle Paul writing, and part of what you have to understand as we go into it is the Apostle Paul is uh, a scholar's scholar. He was student of the principal rabbi of his time, Gamaliel. He was sophisticated. He was brilliant. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So it wasn't just that he was a scholar and brilliant. It's also that he was conservative. He was not a liberal. All right? 
The apostle Peter, on the other hand, was from Galilee. Now, you remember from a couple of weeks ago what Galilee is like. Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, it's, it's like Mongolia to Chinese, right? <laughs> you know, right? I mean, you wouldn't say that, but I mean, Chinese don't look up. Well, I mean, you do look up geographically. But I mean, I made the mistake once of suggesting that a Chinese woman might want to talk to a Mongolian woman in our congregation about some problems. That, that was a bad idea. Okay. <laughs> Didn't work. She said, I'd rather talk to a Russian. So I had some clue. <laughs> so here it would be the way we look at Purdue. Or Bedford. Right? Uh, New York, it would be the way they look at the whole hinterland except San Francisco. And San Francisco would be the way they look at everybody. And so Galilee was a disgusting place. Galilee was the people that were dirty, okay? It was Galilee of the Gentiles. And when you said Gentiles to a Jew, it was not a compliment. All right? It would be the N-word of that time. Not only was the Apostle Peter from Galilee, but the Apostle Peter was a fisherman. And so not only did he stink because he was in Galilee of the Gentiles, but he stank because he was a fisherman. Any of you ever been to Gloucester on Cape Ann in Massachusetts? Well, if you go to Gloucester and you get out of your car, it's like, whoa, you know, you smell the fish. And fish don't smell good. You know how relatives after two or three days, they're like fish, you know, they stink. All right. So you have such an opposite culture where you've got a scholar scholar. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's Judean, you know, in other words, he's in Jerusalem. And then you've got Peter. He's from up north. He's in Galilee of the Gentiles. He fishes for a living. You've got on the one hand a guy who talks and writes for another hand, a guy who uses his hands. And those cultures don't mix. That's the whole theme of breaking away, if you've watched it. You know, the cutters versus the scholars, right? And so here you've got these two men, and the Apostle Paul is a Johnny come lately. He's one born as out of time. You remember he says that, you know, he, it's like he's, he, his birth time isn't, isn't right. He comes after the apostles. You could say after all the heavy lifting is done of Jesus' ministry and the hatred, crucifixion, except that the apostle Paul did a lot of heavy lifting himself. Then you have the fact that this man, Peter, was the one that the Apostle Paul rebuked. And so you put together the scholar-scholar with the guy that works with his hands and from Galilee of the Gen- you put together how these two groups would naturally despise each other, right? And it's the Apostle Paul, the scholar-scholar, who, who trashes Peter in front of the whole church. All right? And so these are these two men. Paul writes Romans, and Peter, the Apostle Peter, writes the book of Second Peter, okay? Now, the book of Second Peter bears a lot of resemblance to the book of Jude. Some of you men have memorized Jude. And if you read the two of them, 
they're very similar. So similar that a lot of people have thought that Jude was copied from 2 Peter and other people that 2 Peter was copied from Jude. If you know anything about New Testament scholarship, you also know that when the scholars get going, one of the first things they say is Peter didn't write 2 Peter. Why? Well, because 2 Peter has sophisticated uh, literary devices. And they say that Peter, the, the fisherman, was not capable of that. But all you have to do to think that one through is think what would happen if I wrote something and then allowed Josh to edit it. Come on, laugh. It would bear no resemblance to what I had written. Every sharp edge would be gone. You know, it would be so, 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 you know? And so it's very simple to say that the book of 2 Peter doesn't resemble the style of what a fisherman would write, but authorship is not just a function of style. You can have somebody who edits your stuff, and how do you argue who writes what? What we know is that the Bible tells us that this book is from Peter, and so it's from Peter. We don't have to be smarty pants about that, okay? Now, what is the, the thrust of 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, and Jude? What, what, what is the push, the thrust of these books? Okay, well, the thrust is what? Do you want to give me a word? Warning. All those books are warnings. Now, you might say, well, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are not warnings. I say, oh, yeah, they are. They're very intense warnings. Don't think that because John was the apostle of love or the disciple that Jesus particularly loved, that he was, like, uh, all soft and uh, lacked any depth or gravitas. Now, with that as a background, let's ask, who, to whom was this letter written? And we have it at the beginning of chapter 1 of the second epistle of Peter, where it said in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the faith is a faith by and in what? The righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's our faith. Our faith is the righteousness of Jesus. It is no threat to our faith for us to be sinners. <laughs> That's why we need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't ever be ashamed to be a sinner. You can be ashamed of your sins, but the reason we need the righteousness of Jesus is that we're sinners. And so this is our faith, and, the, and he writes to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And so we today have this faith of the same kind of Peter's, and so he's writing to us, all right? <clears throat> Now, at the beginning of what we call chapter 2 is a further statement of what he's doing, the work he's doing in our passage that we're going to look at today. 
But I want to read the beginning of chapter 2 where he sets the context for our passage. So we know he's writing to other Christians that have the same faith as he does. That includes us. And then he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. So he's writing about false prophets. And he says, just as there will also be false teachers among you. So it's not just at his time, he's concerned about false prophets, past tense, concerned about them having arisen. He's also talking to us about the false prophets who will arise among us. Just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So we see that there have always been false prophets false shepherds, false teachers, and there are many false teachers today. And God's people have always been warned against these men and women. Now you say women, and I say yes. In Revelation 2, we read the warning that Jesus gives and the rebuke he gives to the church at Thyatira, Thyatira. And he says this, this is Jesus speaking to that church, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. And she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So in the church of Thyatira is a woman who called herself a prophetess and who was encouraging, deceiving, misleading the people of God, the bondservants of Jesus Christ, into sexual immorality and into idolatry. And this is what Jesus says. He has it against this church for tolerating her, which means we are to be intolerant of false shepherds, whether they're men or women. All right? And then Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. Very interesting. He says, with her into great tribulation. Unless they repent, very interesting, he says her, unless they repent of her deeds. And then listen to this, and I will kill her children with pestilence. People tell you that they know what Jesus is like. Ask them, do they know this Jesus who says that he will kill her children? I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Okay? This is Jesus. So we see that the Lord of the church, Jesus, deals summarily with false prophetesses and prophets who destroy his sheep, leading them astray into immorality and idolatry. And there was a similar danger among the sheep that the Apostle Peter is writing to. Many believe today that false prophets are only a danger in the Old Testament. 
Many believe that false prophets are only a danger in the Old Testament and in the time of the early church. Which is another way of saying that many believe that false prophets are not a danger today. Very clearly, he says, there will arise. The Apostle Peter is speaking to us. He's speaking about the future. And you say, oh no, he's speaking to the people that he's writing to. And he's telling them that he knows from among their own number, men will arise, right? That's not what Calvin says. Calvin says, this is for us today. He is telling us that this will be true of the church at all times. And how is it that we are so laissez-faire, that we are so calm and so cocksure of ourselves today that we don't need to be worried about false shepherds and false prophets and false teachers? How is it that the church today doesn't worry about that? There will also be false teachers among you. There are many false shepherds today, many false prophets. And what are their traits? How do we know them? Well, one of the things that's said here at the beginning of this section is that they secretly introduce things. So they work by secrecy. They're sneaky, right? Their work is deception. And what did they introduce secretly? Well, it says that they introduced destructive heresies. False teaching that destroys. So let's think about that for a second. The Apostle Peter is writing us today, and he's telling us we have to be on guard against false, false teachers, false prophets. Okay? He's saying that they will arise and that they will work secretly and that what they teach will be heretical and it will be destructive. Now let me ask you, Where? Where? You know, okay, I'm going to be facetious here. You know, it's so nice that none of your parents and brothers and sisters and their children are going to any church that has a false prophet. I'd be so awkward if your loved ones had a pastor who was a false prophet. Isn't it wonderful that we don't have anybody that we love in a church with a false prophet? Now, I said I'm being facetious. That means tongue-in-cheek. And yet, that's the way you think. You have learned to be sort of chilled about false prophets. Because it's all a matter of perspective. And you're in a church that takes scripture seriously. 
But you understand that certain people can't handle taking Scripture seriously, and God will let let them in too. You say, oh no, I wouldn't say anything so gauche as that. I would say that, you know, all roads lead to Rome. Or no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, all roads lead to heaven. Including the road to Rome. Including all of my seminary friends who have converted to Roman Catholicism. Including Scott Hahn. I mean, you know, we went to seminary together. And if going to seminary together doesn't make you able to recognize that he's a brother in Christ, even though we have serious disagreements about certain things, you know? I mean, he's my brother, you know? I, I know that God loves the people I love and the people that love me. God loves them because they love me and I love them and they love me. And this is how our worldview actually is. That's why I don't believe in any worldview curriculum. It never gets at the real issue. The real issue isn't worldview. The real issue is <laughs> family. That's what Jesus talked about. He didn't give a worldview curriculum. He said, unless you hate your father and your mother and your brother and your sister. <laughs> and that kind of is helpful. Right? Right? Come on, people. The Apostle Peter and Jude, and all through Scripture, it warns us against false teachers. And so, are you ready? I did it before, I'll do it again. Where? amazing something worn so constantly about in scripture something that the apostle Paul is so intensely careful to defend himself against being I never stopped warning them day and night with tears he says isn't it something that we just don't believe in it we don't believe in false prophets and even if we said oh yes I do if I said to you well do you know any you'd say no. And I'd say, really? What about the, the shepherds that care for your loved ones? You'd say, oh, <laughs> no, they go to a PCA church. I go, okay, so that's how it works, huh? People that go to seminary with me and go to presbytery with me, by definition, can't be false. And isn't that sweet? Because that means that the Apostle Paul doesn't have to rebuke Peter to his face in front of the whole church. Do you know what really, really discourages me? What really discourages me is that I'm convinced of two things. Number one, I am convinced that the church today thinks that all it has to be concerned about is whether or not it's interpreting Scripture properly. And all it needs to know how to interpret Scripture properly is just read Don Carson's exegetical fallacies. And you become initiated into the scientific enterprise of exegesis and hermeneutics. And, okay? 
And then you will avoid the errors that all those stupid allegorical interpreters back in the Middle Ages, which were dark. And so we are so sure that modern scholarship has inoculated us against false teachers. And that if we simply have a pastor who studied exegesis and hermeneutics and knows Greek and Hebrew, that, hey, we don't have to worry. He's not committing any of those stupid things that that PhD from Canada tells us not to do. And so we really do believe that scholarship is what protects us from false doctrine. And I'm telling you, I love everybody. I love scholars. I read and read and read and read and read. I got my degree from Oliver Cromwell Seminary. That's a joke. It's Gordon Conwell. It's the same place that Tim Keller went. And I went to UW-Madison in history. Wanted to go to Berkeley, but... And scholars are not to be trusted. They're not to be trusted. I once had a man and his family start coming to our church. And I have never had a man who more perfectly resembled in his character the work that he did. This man was what I have always called a rotter. But nobody knows what that means anymore. But a rotter is a man who has nothing but an appetite of an animal. Alcohol, women, whatever it is, he just does what he feels like. He had a beautiful wife and a large family. They came to church, and he was a rotter. And you know what his job was? His job was whitewashing milk parlors. <laughs> and what does a guy that whitewashes milk parlors do? He goes into the milk parlor and he sprays white on all the you-know-what. Right? Where the cows are. Do any of you know what a milk parlor is? My goodness. And so that's my first concern. My first concern is that we today think that scholarship is what protects us from false teaching. And we think that if we have a pastor who has gone to Gordon-Conwell and has studied at a good school, that we can trust that we will be in safe hands. And that is absolutely a lie. If anything, I would say today that the seminaries are the surest way you can, you, can, you can hire an unfaithful man who knows precisely how to scratch your ears. All right. But here's the second thing. Let's say, forget about the issue of scholarship. Do you as a congregation believe that there are such things as false teachers and false prophets today? Well, of course the answer is yes. And all of you are just spit.
spinning your wheels at the false prophets out there. And how do you find out about them? Well, from Fox News. You know? All of our discernment is just at fever pitch today. You know? And it's all about COVID. Oh, we're, we're discerning. Oh, yes. <laughs> but Satan has done a perfect job of taking our eyes off the ball because what we're concerned about is we're not being told the truth about COVID. And what we're upset about is masks and social distancing and quarantines. Oh, I wish that we had as many people. Oh, no, just one-tenth as many people concerned about false teachers in the church as they're concerned about false politicians and public health officers. We have a friend, and he and the people that go to his church, he keeps saying, look, you people at Clearnote, he always calls us Clearnote, he doesn't realize we've changed our t- name 10 times since then. He says, you people at Clearnote, you know, we're your friends. We're not criticizing you, you know. And it's like, dude, it doesn't have anything to do with our relationship. It has to do with how the church is dealing with God's discipline. And whether we're humble and focus on the things that remain, or whether we spend all our time and energy dealing with politics. That's the issue. I don't give a rip about masks. I told one guy who hasn't worn a mask, well, he had one on this morning. But, I mean, I've watched him. He doesn't wear a mask. And I said to him, you realize the elders made a decision at the very beginning that we were not going to be the enforcer for the civil authority. At the very beginning, we decided we're not going to enforce the civil authorities' rules in this church. We're going to ask you to obey them, but I know there are people who come, never wear masks. Who cares? I mean, okay, if you're a child, I would maybe say to you, you should put a mask on. You know, but if you're an adult, I, I trust you to decide what PG-13 and R and all the rest of them mean. The issue isn't who's right and wrong about COVID. That's not the issue. The issue isn't who won the election. The issue is that God has spoken. And if we use our capital to try to protect our rights against the tyrants, what capital is left for you to warn your relatives about the kingdom of God? How much capital do you think you have with your relatives? I am not making a political statement. I am not saying that it doesn't matter whether or not the United States lives under constitutional government and the rule of law. That's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that Christians should be apolitical. 
I'm not against you having an opinion about masks. I'm not against you having your favorite bar graphs that you like to trot out. But unless the true weight of your discernment and of your witness is for the kingdom of God and against false doctrine, you are wasting your life. He says, many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And then he says this, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And so what we know about false shepherds and false prophets is they're greedy. They're greedy. And David knows that's an ad hominem argument. And this is how the Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Peter to speak to us. He wants us to look to see if they're greedy. He wants us to be on guard. And he wants us to know that eternity hangs on this whole issue. So beginning with verse 17 of chapter 2 of 2 Peter. These are, and he's referring to the false prophets, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, and this is a quote from Proverbs, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Really? Really? Mary Lee and I were with Lucas and Hannah and their brood, along with Ron and Doris Weeks. And Ron and Doris were waxing elephant, as Max would put it, about the Holy Land. Doris was saying how life-changing it was. They went there earlier this year. And then Lucas made a statement. He said, I have to admit that when I came over the rise or something like that and saw the oasis or something like that, saw the green, and I couldn't figure out when you saw that. When did you see that? So when you visited your sister in Morocco, you came and saw in a valley green, right? Huh? An olive grove, and you said it was what? Uh, it was the sign thing like 
It was astonishingly beautiful. We have a hard time understanding that because we live in a climate where we take water for granted. I remember, though, when I moved back to the Midwest from Southern California, and I'm colorblind, I was overwhelmed by the green. It just boggled my mind. In California, the only thing that's green is at the end of a hose. And here, it's everywhere. But you have to transport yourself back to Palestine when people lived from water to water. Last night I was reading uh, an account of the Royal Navy at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, Keith bought me a two-volume set of wonderful books. And one of the things they said is one of the greatest difficulties for the ships at that time was the fact that they had very little water. And the only, the only time you were allowed to just drink was when you were watering. In other words, when you were at a port and you were bringing on tons of water and then they would go ahead and let you drink. The other times, the midshipmen only got two pints of water per day. Two pints. So we take water for granted. But when the Apostle Peter was writing... He was writing to people who lived in an arid land, and he was writing people who knew what it was to be in a desert. And this is what he says about these false shepherds. He says, they are springs without water and miss clouds driven by a storm. In other words, false prophets promise you something that they don't give. And that thing they don't give you is life-sustaining. Imagine being Lucas and Willis coming up over the rise in Morocco. You see the fig trees, or olive trees. You go down, there's a spring there, but it has no water. You go down to the well, and it's dry. Or imagine that you're in a drought, and there's been no rain three years. All of a sudden, you see the clouds coming. And you're so excited there's going to be rain But those clouds are driven away by the winds. That's what he's talking about here. He's talking about clouds that won't give you rain and a well and a spring that won't give you water. And that's what false shepherds are. You're expectant. You're hopeful. You want them to give you the words of eternal life. And they are empty. They are Well, what are they? Well, it says, For whom the black darkness has been reserved for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by flesh. They speak out. I like that. (laughs) You know, they speak words of arrogant. They're arrogant. They speak words of vanity. But it doesn't say that. It says they speak out. You know, it's like they're aggressive in their vanity. It's like a painted lady. She stinks. And you can't even look at her. She has so much makeup on. That's what these guys are like. They speak out in their arrogance and their vanity. Now, what would this be like? Well, this is somebody who is very, very good at pulpiteering. Somebody who's erudite. Somebody who's sophisticated. Somebody who has been trained in rhetoric. Somebody that always has a shaggy dog story for some and a classical quotation for the others. This is somebody who is always making 
very good points that you can't remember three seconds later. But you leave impressed with his pulpiteering, you know? Remember what Kierkegaard says? I, I live in Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard says, you know, that if you want to know what a sermon is like, listen to its echo because nature has appointed echoes to tell you what you're hearing, all right? And he says, if the echo, when a preacher's done preaching, is <clears throat> what, a, what an educated man and how deep and profound his insights. <clears throat> okay? He says, there's absolutely nothing of the word of God in that man's preaching. Because the word of God never, never is, is, is gifted by God in such a way that it builds our esteem for the preacher. Right? I mean, it's true. There isn't room for a preacher to build his reputation and God's at the same time. Okay, so that's the first one. He says, now, he says, if you go and the echo from the preacher, and he's done preaching, the echo is, uh, I'm a little bit disturbed by that man. And he seems to have something wrong with him. And I'm not sure what it is, but I think it's a disease. It may be a coronavirus, I'm not sure, right? He, and Kierkegaard says, then know that there is something of God in his preaching, but he fails from lack of faith. Okay, and then the third echo. He says, if the echo of the preacher when he gets done preaching is, away with the man! He is, he is worthy of death. He says, know then that this is the preaching of Scripture. And this is the word of God. But not these men. The false shepherds are arrogant and vain. And so they have deep insights and the perfect illustration and the perfect degree and the perfect pedigree and they've studied exegesis they've studied hermeneutics and it's just a whole ball of uh, goodness it's all there he's the full package right and so his church is filled with people who can't believe that a search committee came up with the pastor they want. But sure enough, everybody loves him. The town fathers love him, the professors love him, the doctors love him, the lawyers love him, even the lands, even the fishermen from Galilee. He just strokes everybody right where they itch. Arrogant and vain. Arrogant and vain. One of the things that's most depressing to me today is to be around other pastors, other elders, and to see how common it is that men who have the calling from God to proclaim sin and righteousness and judgment have no ability ever to admit they're wrong. How does that work? 
How do you convince people that they're wrong, which is of the essence of coming to the cross? And yet somehow yourself never be wrong. Or how is it that you convince other people they're sinners while never being a sinner yourself? How does that work? Because I want some of it. But unfortunately, I have this habit of living out loud. Come on, people. Do you really need a shepherd who's clean? Do you think it was clean to be around the Apostle Peter? <laughs> I think that dude was, I think people were backslapping him all the time. Shut up, Peter. You keep running your mouth. What is wrong with you? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, come on. John. But have you ever read the Gospel of John? I mean, whatever Peter says immediately, John waits. And by the time the two of them have spoken, they've licked the platter clean. I mean, John is like, whoa, hair plastered straight back, fasten your safety belt. Have you ever read the Gospel of John? I mean, I actually read it. Listen. Abraham was no hot stuff. And his wife would tell you that. David was no hot stuff. Peter was no hot stuff. Paul persecuted the church to death. And yet false shepherds are arrogant. And they have no self-critical capacity and you'll never catch them confessing any sin. How? How do sheep put themselves under a man like that unless the sheep themselves lack any self-critical capacity? And this is the reason why the mark of a false shepherd is he does not preach sin, he does not preach the law, and he does not preach repentance, and he does not preach the fear of God. And I ask you, are your loved ones and your relatives in churches like that? And if they are, I ask you, do you not have any love for the souls of your loved ones? What, you're going to read the Apostle Peter warning you about these people, but then you're just going to keep the warning to yourself. How many of you have done that with COVID? I mean, you're willing to make everybody your enemy because of whichever position, you know, there's no lack of enemies over COVID. I wish people could have heard what you said to me right after Adam died about how you and he were talking about people's attitudes towards COVID. Adam was, can I say it, just disgusted. And so it's not that we're unwilling to have enemies, but somehow our enemies that we're willing to have are on the basis of political commitments because we care more about our political commitments than we do the kingdom of God. That's the reason. Do you love your loved ones? Do you love them? And okay, come on. 
I know you do. And so I'm not really asking if you love them. I'm trying to shove it in your face that you're not loving them the way they should. I'm not trying to make everything, yes, this, no, that, yes, this, no, that. But I'm trying to get you to realize that if false shepherds exist, if they lead the people that follow them into the eternal darkness that has been reserved for them, okay, not just them, but the people they lead, if they do it with greed, if greed is their motivation, if they're encouraging sensuality and the lusts of the flesh, It's like at some point we ought to look at each other and go, <laughs> you know, wake up, little Susie, wake up. <clears throat> right? Now, I know that many of you have read this text and have gotten to the point where it says, like Hebrews, it would have been better than, for them if they had never known the salvation of Jesus Christ, right? Right? Because you say, well, Jesus says, if you come to me, nobody can take you out of my hand. And what you have to realize is that the question of whether or not we and you have come to Christ is an open question. That's why so often in the New Testament it says for us to test our salvation. To see if we're in the faith. And if your doctrine is such that it enables you to escape those statements and not feel that they apply to you and your children and your wife and husband, then you're not reading Scripture properly. God has given us warnings in Scripture to test ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. And so what's going on here is that there are people, and we know this from Scripture, we know this as elders from our meetings We know this from our families. There are loved ones that we have in this church and in our families who absolutely indicate the fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit. You can't explain any other way what we have seen in terms of fruit in people's lives other than that God let them taste of the works of the Spirit. And yet that taste did not take Okay? And you don't have to deny that there was indication of the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. But you have to take seriously, Jesus saying, that there were four kinds of soil. Only one of those four kinds of soil produced fruit. Our Savior's rule is by their fruit you shall know them. Okay? And so there are people who have come to Jesus, who have prayed the sinner's prayer, who have had the sacraments, okay, who have been circumcised of the foreskin, but not the heart. Remember what the Apostle Paul is teaching in Romans. Who have been baptized by water, but not by the Spirit. Okay? Okay? And I'm not making a comment about infant or believer. Let's just deal with believer. And so what we have to realize is that these people are in desperate danger because of false shepherds. Because of what it says. You heard it. What it says is, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 
after they have escaped the defilements of the world. After they have escaped the defilements of the world. Does that sound like a Christian? Okay? For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And you say, well, how could they not be Christians if they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? And I say, well, that's what the text is telling you. They cannot be Christians. <laughs> they cannot be regenerate. They cannot be saved. They can have escaped, but then be drawn back in. And you say, well, but, but no. Jesus says you can't take him out of his hands. I say, listen, you remember in John 3, he says, the wind blows where it lists. These are the secret things of God. We don't know. We don't know. Hypocrites are known only to God. What we do know is what? Think about it. What we do know is there is danger. There's danger. There's danger to people who talk about Jesus. There's danger to people who have been baptized. There's danger to people who are here in this church. There's danger to people who preach the gospel. I want to read to you what Calvin says. Well, okay, first, a couple of things. About the character of people who are false shepherds, I want you to know that it is their stock and trade to snooker you with sophisticated expressions and words so that you're left feeling sort of spiritual and feeling sort of guilty and not sure what you should do about it, but it must be deep because it sounds deep. You all with me? You all with me? I'm stupid enough that I don't get it, but other people seem to get it because they've got a thousand likes. And so I'll go to bed hoping that tomorrow I wake up smarter. Maybe eat a little fish oil or calcium or whatever it is that helps your brain. Well, what helps your brain? I don't know. So going through <clears throat> all the men who are pastors and well-trained, who have signed the documents supporting Revoice, which is, shall we say, a work of sensuality in the church? I mean, if we can't say that, we might as well be deaf, dumb, and blind, right? So this guy is supporting the LGBTQ movement in the PCA that says they're oppressed minorities, okay? As it turns out, this guy also has other things he's concerned about and is speaking about. And I'm reading, he wrote a book called White Evolution, okay? And I'm reading a summary by a reviewer that really likes the book. So this is the reviewer summarizing this PCA pastor who's pro-revoice on another issue. And he says, the book White Evolution recounts the historical movement towards supremacy and cast the possibility of a white evolution toward racial justice through collective critical consciousness. 
Did you all get that? Let me read it again. The book White Evolution recounts the historical movement towards supremacy and casts the possibility of a white evolution towards racial justice through collective critical consciousness. Okay? Don't go to sleep on me. You, you got to stay woke, people. The, <laughs> the constant struggle for racial consciousness has no arrival point. Yeah, that's what Jurgen says about global warming. It's unfalsifiable. <laughs> There's no arrival point. We're not headed anywhere. Don't ever think you've made any progress. It has no arrival point. White consciousness will never be woke because there is no past tense and no plateau. When privilege and supremacy are akin to a constantly evolving and insidious virus, white fluenza. It's here. And the antidote is to outpace white evolution for supremacy with a white evolution for racial justice. This is not an individual test, but rather a systemic redesign and reconstruction of social systems and requiring the cultivation of a collective critical consciousness. White evolution covers a great deal of historical detail and contemporary examples to explain and explore new possibilities for recognizing the importance of interdependence of humanity. Okay? <clears throat> Listen, that is false prophecy. And it's not false prophecy because I'm white. It's false prophecy because it's gobbledygook. And it sounds so deep. And although you think you don't get it, you actually do. The emperor has no clothes. And this is the stuff that a lot of you people are reading and, and saying, oh, that's so stupid. But you don't get it. The issue is not that it's stupid. The issue is not that it's dividing the church today. The issue is these are false prophets. These are men who have had the darkness reserved for them and who are sucking Christians, all right, but not Christians, with them to go into the darkness. And that's what's at stake. Remember how I said at the beginning, where are these false prophets? Where are the false shepherds? Where are the false teachers? Well, not in Bloomington. You know, there aren't any false pastors in Bloomington. All right, then, let me ask you this. If there are no false pastors in Bloomington, false shepherds, why is it that none of your friends have any fear of God? You say, well, I don't know what fear of God is. I say, oh, yes, you do. <laughs> and you know you don't see it. One of you who's here this morning was an elder in a church or dead. I once asked him, I said, tell me something. Is there fear of God in your church? And immediately he said, oh, yes. I said, I remember, this guy was an elder for years in this church. I said, wait a second. I said, stop and think again and answer me again. 
is there the fear of God in your church? And then there was a long silence, and then he said no. Listen, dear brothers and sisters. You know how the Bible says that he tasted Scripture and that it was sweet like honey. And where is Scripture at its sweetest? It's at its sweetest when it shows us our sin. Aren't you weary of being flattered? Aren't you weary of everybody being nice? Isn't it sweet to have Scripture name our sins and rip us open so that we can see ourselves in the sight of God? Why would you not want your children to grow up having that happen to them? Wouldn't you want that for your brothers and sisters and for your parents? Don't you want your brothers and sisters and parents to be under a pastor who teaches them to fear God? Are these light, trivial things we're talking about? And I'm not talking about having an intellectual disposition to say that, you know, my dad had a little saying on the wall by our bathroom or by his, by the boys' bathroom. We had girls' bathroom, boys' bathroom. So outside of the boys' bathroom was a, a bulletin board with all the missionaries on. In the middle of that was a little sign that said, I got to get this right. I used to think I was right all the time, but then one time when I thought I was wrong, it turned out I was right. (laughs) That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the fear of God. That's just some intellectual... uh, acceptance of the limitations of human nature. I'm talking about somebody who is tender when you go to them about their sin. I'm talking about somebody who lives fully aware that they are not God. And so receives teaching like a little bird with the mouth back and open. Somebody who doesn't consider themselves superior to their pastor. And who doesn't have a fit if their pastor's wrong. Because he thinks, well, maybe next time he'll get it right. You know? All right, I'm going to end with this. What is your view of the Christian life? 
Calvin says something here that I think should be helpful to you. He's talking about the end here where he says that their end is worse than if they had never known the truth. And this is what he says. He says, the gospel is a medicine which purges us by wholesome vomiting. The gospel is a medicine that purges us by wholesome vomiting. In other words, we become holy by vomiting. And then he says, but there are many dogs who swallow again what they vomited to their own ruin. The gospel is also a sink which cleanses all of our uncleanness. But there are many pigs who immediately after washing roll themselves again in the mud. Thus the godly are reminded to take heed to themselves unless they wish to be declared dogs or pigs. Listen, demystify, deromanticize the Christian life. It is extremely difficult. And only those who grow in their dependence on the Holy Spirit make it to the end. There are many who have gone out from us. And many of them, it was because they were not of us. And you know I'm quoting John. Do not take lightly the danger of flattery. The danger of being under pastors who will not rebuke you. Under pastors who won't preach the law of God and call you to repentance. Don't take lightly the danger of your loved ones in churches like that. Don't think it doesn't matter who your shepherds are. (laughs) Now, I know, you can all sit there and think, oh, well, you know, he's telling you, you should come to his church, right? Okay? But I have my wife telling me I may not say something that would help you at this moment. But may I say it? Okay, I'm going to say it. I'm going to be gone soon! Please! It's not about me. I think one of the most wonderful things about this church is that there is absolutely no, uh, what's the word? Um, Admiration for Pastor Bailey. You tell yourself, how did he pull that one off? seems like I'm made for admiration. After all, I'm tall. Listen, people, can we please pursue the kingdom of God? Can we please pursue the kingdom of God? And can that be a yoke that binds us to death? Eh? Thank you, Father, for the Apostle Peter. Thank you, Father, for Joe and Mary Lou and Ken and Margaret 
who day after day demonstrated the fear of God. Thank you for those who live in our midst in this church who are humble. Thank you, Father, for our Titus II women and our deacons and elders who love their shepherds who tell them the truth. Father, protect this church. Give us faith in the pure and unadulterated milk of the word of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.